0: This is Dr. Howard, founder and formulator of Balance of Nature. We're changing America one life at a time. He is right now in treatment for aggressive brain cancer. So far in his six weeks treatment with chemo and radiation, we're on week five. And his numbers, his labs, are astounding every doctor standing there. We just came back today from the fifth week lab report, and they just don't even know how his labs are looking this good. So I, I I know it's a combination of things. However, one of the key components is Balance of Nature.
1: From now until April 21st, receive a 20% discount and free shipping on any first order of Balance of Nature. Again, this special radio offer will only be available through April 21st. Call 1-800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com.
0: To take advantage of this special offer, use the special promo code PODCAST.
1: Are you saying that kale is not the superfood I've been led to believe it is?
0: <laughs> I think if you want to eat a little bit of steamed kale now and then, go for it, especially if you, if you cook it with a lot of fat. If you're going to put a whole bunch of butter on it, or you're going to use bacon grease and fry it up really nicely, you can eat it. Do not ever eat it raw. It is not edible raw.
1: In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 cast. I was very convincing
0: and I took it up with a fervor and no, that was that. So for 20 years I did it and um, I destroyed my body, which you will do if you do this long term. Um, you This is a land of barbecue. It is. And you're a vegan. I am. What's that like? What's that like?
1: How's that been for you? It's been a great experience for me, for <laughs> a great for well-being. You know, when you come from a family that literally owned a soul food restaurant, my mom and dad, it may have caused some uh, trouble, but now they
0: understand that for health reasons, it's a good way to go. Yeah, but you know, you're not eating barbecue down here, right? Maybe no. putting a little sauce on the vegetables.
1: That was presidential candidate Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey talking about his veganism. Welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm Georgie Borman. Here at the 180 cast, we seek to have thoughtful conversations with people who have changed their minds on issues just like this. Uh, What we use to fuel our bodies is a pretty big deal. And in this day and age, food is as controversial as it has perhaps ever been. Booker says he became a vegan for health reasons, Our guest today has been on both sides of the meat divide. She's been stirring the pot, so to speak, ever since she left veganism over 10 years ago, and she knows quite a bit about how veganism affects our health. Lier Keith is the author of The Vegetarian Myth Food Justice and Sustainability, which you can find on Amazon. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lier. I have been very excited to talk to you about this. I went down a rabbit hole on YouTube the other day and I have no idea really how I got there as per usual with YouTube, but I had no idea that there's this whole community of ex-vegans out there. I had no idea they existed. I thought that once you go vegan, that's it. You're, you're locked in for life, but apparently that's not the case. So you used to be a vegan Can you tell me a little bit about how you initially got into veganism and then we can talk about what led you to start eating meat and animal products again?
0: Sure. So I was a vegan for almost 20 years. It's a long time, way longer than most. Um, And I became a vegan when I was 16 years old. My route in was the way in that most people find, which is that uh, mostly, we are convinced by somebody else who is a vegan. So you meet a vegetarian or a vegan, and you know they give you all this kind of information, and it all seems to make sense, and then you take the plunge. So for me, I was mean, 16 years old. I was very idealistic, very very young. I didn't know much about anything really. Um, I did have a lot of passion for justice and sustainability, and you know I, I wanted a better world. And when I met this other teenage girl whose family were all vegans. I mean, she just laid it all out, and within an hour, I could see that, you know, this clearly had to be the right thing to do, um, you know, for everything, for your health, for animals, for the planet, for starving people. Like, you could make justice for everybody if you just did this one thing, and so it's a a very simple, you know, kind of idea, um, and with just making this one change, you know, you could make so much right with the world, and that is really appealing to people. Um, especially if you're, you know, young and impassioned and, you know, you're feeling the pain of the world so much, which I think a lot of teenagers do. And so, I mean, the impulse was correct, but I had no counterbalancing information. I had grown up in a very kind of urban, suburban area. I didn't even know what broccoli looked like, you know, as a plant. Like I, had, I mean, I figured that apples came from trees, but that was about it. I mean, I had never seen food really growing, I certainly didn't know the cost of the food that, you know, the, the ecological cost of the food that I was proposing to eat as a vegan. So I, I just thought she was right. It seemed to make sense. And, you know, you see the pictures of the, the factory farmed animals. And, the, you know, and that's just torture what those animals go through. So... That that part, you know, is something I think that many people can agree to. Whatever you decide to eat, that you know, the, the kinds of things that are happening right now to animals are just wrong. So it was very convincing, and I took it up with a fervor, and you know, that was that. So for twenty years, I did it, and um, I destroyed my body, which you will do if you do this long term. There's no question there, and so I ended up with a lot of uh, chronic, incurable kinds of things as a result. Um, And I, you know, really took it to the bitter end. Um, And then one day, uh, just, (laughs) yeah, somebody that I respected very much said to me that this, I really couldn't go on doing this, that I was going to kill myself. And he was right. So, you know, I did take that that final kind of plunge into my first bite of meat and everything changed. So it's a really hard day. Nobody gives this up easily, especially when you're that invested, but Um, You know, it's a a slow path back because you have to kind of rebuild, you know, your sense of self, your ideas about the world, your place in the cosmos. I mean, it's really hard. And I get emails all the time from people who, you know, are at the beginning of this process where they've been a vegetarian or a vegan for a while, you know, two years, five years, ten years, and their health is collapsing and they know it, especially the ones who have children. You know, very concerned now that they have better information and they don't know emotionally how to move forward. So it's a, it's a hard, hard thing to do. Um, and also, you know, we should add that you will lose a lot of friends. Look, there's there's cult-like elements to this particular diet. It's a lot more than just a diet. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's a whole world that you enter. It's a whole community. But when you leave, um, you're going to leave a lot of them behind. So a lot of people are also afraid of kind of social censure that's going to follow. And I can't pretend that won't happen to them. But what I try to say is, you, you can make new friends. You can't make a new body, and you absolutely can't grow a child a new body. Like you get one chance to do that right. And if you already know this isn't working, then you already have your answer, and you, you're going to have to move forward with what you know now. But it's it's hard. It's definitely hard. And it was it was a horrible, you know, kind of year or two for me when I gave it up.
1: Yeah, food seems increasingly controversial nowadays, uh, especially among my generation, the millennials. It seems like exactly like what you're saying, like it's not just a diet, it's a lifestyle, it's a community. It, It says something about who you are. And if you change your diet radically, it does seem to me that that would throw kind of your identity off balance. So that's a really interesting point. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about the health aspect? Because I have heard testimonies from other ex-vegans where they talk about how their health deteriorated. Could you give me just like a little bit more detail on what exactly happened and why?
0: Sure. So, Uh, Gosh, it was really just a few months in and I started to experience um, really bad blood sugar problems. I didn't know that's what it was at the time. I really didn't have a language for that. I just knew that I was increasingly hungry in a way that I had never been hungry. So it's not just, oh, wow, I should eat. I'm feeling, you know, kind of tired. It's like if I don't put food in my mouth, I feel like I'm going to fall over and die. And what's happened is, you know, you flooded your body with a whole bunch of sugar, essentially. Now, I did not eat white sugar for 20 years. I mean, I didn't touch refined sugar or refined flour. Um, I was so strict, you know, in terms of what I would eat and what I wouldn't. Um, so it's not like I was one of those junk food vegans who was eating, like, Oreos or something. It was, I mean, I was, like, just the whole beans, whole grains. like, And this was before all of those like the really easy products they have now, none of that existed. We didn't have soy milk in containers. We didn't have fake ice cream. Like we didn't have any of that stuff. So it was mostly just rice and beans, right? But still, it's this huge load of sugar ultimately. And if it makes you feel better to call it complex carbohydrate, you know, go ahead. But, you know, every one of those complex carbohydrates is broken down into simple sugars. That's what your digestive tract does with it. And then all that sugar, you know, floods into your bloodstream. So... You know, day after day, that's what I was doing, was just eating a load of sugar three or four times a day. Um, And so what happens is, you know, we can only, you know, survive as humans, and it's a very, very narrow range of blood sugar, um, and anything below or or above that, and it really is a biological emergency, especially to the brain. Um, And anyone who's diabetic knows what this is like, because if it's too high or too low, I mean, you can fall into a coma and die. So it is very serious, and your body takes it very seriously. So, you know, you're eating this load of whatever kind of sugar, and now your blood sugar is too high. So the immediate response from your body is, let's turn out a whole bunch of insulin. So your pancreas cranks into gear, and this flood of insulin now hits the bloodstream. But it's a really blunt instrument, and you can clearly see we were not designed to eat this way because the insulin, now it floods, but it's too much insulin. Like, it, there's no, it's not, there's no way to make it... Um, you know, be finely tuned, like it just it and it grabs everything that's sort of loose in your bloodstream and shoves it out into the cells as fast as it can so that you're you're not in that emergency range anymore. Um, so now your blood sugar's too low because it's not finely tuned, right? It just grabs everything, shoves it into the cells. Um, so now your blood sugar is too low and now you felt like you're going to die if you don't eat again. And that's what was happening to me over and over. I didn't feel bad on the upswing particularly, but every time my blood sugar crashed, I was like, I was shaking, I was sweating. You you had this horrible kind of like weird headache and you just know you have to eat. So it was just like constant compulsion to put another little snack in my face. And that's why it was just a blood sugar problem. Um, and, you know, pretty much everyone who comes to that world ends up with blood sugar problems. That's probably the number one thing that happens to everyone, and fairly quickly, because your insulin receptors just start wearing out. So every time you do it, you need a little more insulin to get the same effect. And year by year by year, it's like a lock into a key, you know. like Over time, it it just wears down, and now insulin doesn't fit anymore into the insulin receptors. So you're going to need more and more of it. So that was the first thing that happened. And that was pretty quick on that I, you know, I started to get these weird kind of blood sugar problems. Um, another thing that happened was I stopped menstruating. And this is very common amongst women who are either eating a really low fat diet um, or women who are vegan. So just sort of naturally, there's no animal products in the diet. And also women who are athletes because their body fat is just too low. So, you know, either way, um, what's happening is. You know, cholesterol has been so vilified over the last 20 or 30 years, but it's this incredibly life-giving substance. Like, every last cell in your body has cholesterol as the membrane that makes, that gives your cell its basic integrity. So, if you were to, in, in one instant, take all the cholesterol out of your body, you would be a puddle on the floor. Because that's what keeps your cells, it's firm, it's like a balloon, you know, and there's all whatever inside, but without that membrane, like you, you have no structural integrity. And that's what. That's one of the like incredible things that cholesterol does, is it, it provides that. And one of the reasons that we need cholesterol is because if you think about animal bodies, we are a set of electrical impulses inside a watery environment. And the only way those electrical impulses are going to fire, so from the brain, you know, like down your spine, out through your nerves, the only way that those impulses are going to fire is if the nerves are somehow insulated, right? Just like wire has insulation around it. And all of that insulation is made by cholesterol. So that's another thing cholesterol gives us is we are actually able to function, you know, with brains that want to move our bodies around. And the only reason that that happens is because cholesterol coats those nerves. So all of that falls apart when you don't have cholesterol. Um, another thing cholesterol does is, and this goes back to you know your reproductive issues, um, cholesterol is sort of the base substance. It's it, it, From cholesterol, your body makes every last hormone that it needs. So it's like the mother hormone, and that includes your sex hormones. So without cholesterol, your body can't make all of its hormones. Um, and your body will do this, these really interesting things like, okay, you don't, we don't have a lot of cholesterol right now. You're not eating it for whatever reason. So we're going to shut down reproductive function. We can talk about having babies in a few years when you're getting better food, but right now we just need to stay alive moment to moment. So you're, we're going to use cholesterol for things that are you know, like kind of minute to minute going to keep you going, um, and we'll, we'll put rep- reproduction aside for now. So it stops using cholesterol to make those hormones. So you don't have enough. Um,
1: So it's like your body's on on backup power.
0: Yeah. And so it it does like triage, you know, like, okay, we need this right now to stay alive. You don't have to have a baby right now to stay alive. We can deal with that later, you know, when you're more well-fed. So, you know, that went on for 20 years, and nobody could tell me why, but it was not a single doctor who ever asked me, well, what are you eating? And part of the problem is that doctors don't get any real nutrition you know, background when they're in school. So nobody even knew to ask me that question. It wasn't until later, you know, after I came out of it, out of the fog, I was like, well, this is so obvious. Of course, this is, these are the groups of women who are going to have these problems. You know, there's just not enough in the body to make sex hormones. So, you know, I was just really messing around with that. So that wasn't luckily, I didn't really want to get pregnant, so it wasn't partic- it wasn't like a heartbreaking issue for me. But I know for women who do want to have children that this can be something that goes on for years. and they can't figure out why they're having fertility issues. And the simplest thing in the world is just eat more animal fat, good quality animal fat, pretty much guarantee in a few months you'll be able to conceive. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not true for everyone, but it's like the number one thing you can try just across the board that will often produce really great results. We're not eating, you know, to the human template at this point. We're eating really bizarre fats that we've never eaten before. And, you know, the animal fats have been so vilified that even if you're not paying attention and just sort of eating what's out there, you're not getting the right kinds of fats in your diet. You have to kind of go so, out of your way at this point to get the right ones.
1: So what about the objection that I hear a lot, which is that you can get all of the amino acids that you need to build the proteins that your body needs, from
0: plant sources so as far as proteins go that's not true um we used to think that you know when you ate proteins that it would be broken down into every last amino acid that was in there and then they would get reassembled as your body needs them and that's not really true you know now that they can tag them through the digestive system they actually stay together in in slightly bigger chunks and you really do need to be eating them in the ways that we can use them, and the ways that we can use them match animal bodies pretty perfectly because we're animals. I mean, that sort of seems obvious, right, from the outside, but it's just true. Oh, um, and so, you, you you really do need to be eating at least a good chunk of animal protein every day to really for the, for that protein to really be utilized by your body, especially your brain. Um, And and this is one reason that, you know, we're seeing these huge epidemic levels of things like depression and anxiety in in the population. It's just that, you know, we're not eating the way that, you know, our ancestors ate. You know, you think about the average breakfast right now in America, and it's like cereal, toast, orange juice, skim milk, um, you know, even worse, like pastries, you know, Pop-Tarts, whatever. And it's really just a load of sugar. Um, there's no animal protein in any of that. A little bit of milk maybe, but there's not enough fat to really utilize it. Um, right. and-
1: it's really interesting that you say that because I'm, I'm pregnant right now. I'm about to go into my third trimester, and I've noticed that my blood sugar is much more difficult to handle in terms of it's just like this roller coaster throughout the day. And I've I've actually noticed that eggs and bacon, if I have that for lunch, that's like the only thing that will get me through all the way to dinner. Because otherwise, I need to keep snacking on something.
0: So yes, absolutely. No, that's you figured it out yourself. So keep eating that way. Like, just don't let anybody tell you to stop. That's what you need. Just good, solid animal fat and protein all day long, and you will be way more satiated um, than eating like the little carbohydrate kind of you know meals or snacks that everyone tells us to be eating. Um, So yeah, that's you know that's the so and also the other problem with plant-based proteins is that plant bodies are made out of cellulose, and so when you eat a plant protein source, you know it comes wrapped in cellulose, and the human body doesn't have a way to break through that cellulose. We don't, we're not cows. We can't do it. Um, If you compare the digestion of say a cow, any ruminant, to the digestion of a human or a wolf or a dog. Uh, the main difference is they have multiple stomachs and it's who's actually doing the digestion in that stomach for a ruminant it's not actually the cow doing the digestion, it's the bacteria inside the rumen and their stomachs are very neutral so we have very acid stomachs to kill bacteria, they have very neutral stomachs to encourage bacteria and it's the bacteria that actually breaks down the cellulose, they can actually do that fermentative process and get for the cellulotic wall, and then that food is then available. Um, So what's happening inside a cow or a bison is actually really interesting because the cow is not technically eating the grass. The cow is feeding the grass to the bacteria. The bacteria is eating the grass, and then the cow is actually eating the bodies of the bacteria. What? That just blew my mind. I know. It's amazing, right? The cow is actually taking this very, very low nutrient substance, grass, which is really just pure cellulose. There's not much else in it. Um, And then turning it into uh, this really high-fat, high-protein substance, which is the bodies of bacteria. So it's a little community. I mean, this is the thing about life that's always so just awe-inspiring. It's how all of us are dependent on all these other creatures. And we are just this series, really what we are is just a series of relationships amongst all of us but that's why cows need grass and grass needs cow and the bacteria is absolutely crucial in all of this and ultimately this is what makes a prairie be a prairie is that you have to have the grass you have to have the the bison or the cows and you have to have the bacteria and all of them work together to create more topsoil which means more life um and it's just this amazing thing but none of them can do it alone they all need each other so it just goes around in this little cycle um, but that's what's happening. We can't do that as humans. We don't have the capacity to eat grass. I mean, you can try it if you really want to be a hardcore vegan, but you're not going to get any tr- nutrition out of grass. We can't do it. So, And this is true for all plant proteins. We can only get yeah. so much nutrition out of them because we weren't designed to break through the cellulose. So we can get a little bit right. out of things like satsuni, meat, ugh, nuts and seeds, but not as much as we're led to believe.
1: Are you saying that kale is not the superfood I've been led to
0: believe it is? <laughs> I think if you want to eat a little bit of steamed kale now and melon, then go for it, especially if you put it if you cook it with a lot of fat. If you're gonna put a whole bunch of butter on it or you're gonna use bacon grease, you know, and fry it up really nicely, you can eat it. Do not ever eat it raw. It is not edible raw. Kale has so many anti nutrients, it's not edible and it also is really hard on your thyroid. All of those cold crops The brassicas, like you've got broccoli, kale, any of those collards, you don't want to eat them raw. It's just not a good idea.
1: Wait, are you saying all of these smoothie shops that are marketing vegetables hidden in our in our fruit smoothies are like have no idea what they're doing?
0: That they don't have any idea. They really are hurting people. And there's actually medical literature about this. There have been studies done because people have turned up in doctors' offices with these bizarre. Uh, mineral deficiencies and stuff and like, why why is this happening and then it turns out oh they're all either vegetarians or vegans and guess what they're eating tons of smoothies every day so there are substances in plants especially in you know the vegetables that we're used to eating that are called anti-nutrients and their job is to stop animals from eating the plants the plants this is how plants fight back right they can't run they can't they don't have teeth they don't have nails like they can't fight back the way that a squirrel would or the way a wolf would. Um, what they can do, though, is chemicals. And they're the chemical warfare agents, you know, par excellence. This is what they've been doing for, you know, millions of years. And so they're they're very good at developing chemicals that make animals sick. And so one thing that they do is they create these antinutrients. So in your digest- digestive tract, um, these various substances will do things like glom onto all of the calcium so you don't get any, or they will attach to, um, you know, other minerals so that you now have a deficiency. And soy is especially good at this, and this is why, you know, a lot of us ended up with trouble from eating a lot of soy. Soy has so many of these kinds of substances that, like, it's impossible to overcome it. Um, And this is why a lot of people end up with really bad stomach aches after eating soy or even diarrhea after eating soy. Um, and that, and that's ultimately why, is that, that that's how the soy is fighting back. It, soy is very good at, um, there's a, an enzyme that our our uh, stomachs produce or our intestines produce that helps us actually do the digestion, and um, soy can block all of that. And, and so, therefore, it just creates us with havoc, you know, as the, as the soy moves through. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've known so many people just... You know, anecdotally Who like, you know We're in the doctor's office for weeks like, With bloody diarrhea And it was like It was the soy And I'm like Why don't you take soy out of your diet And see what happens And, you know, two days later It's like, wow, well, I'm cured <laughs> like, yeah It's not actually meant to be eaten So kale is very similar It has a lot of anti-nutrients So one way that humans Have figured out to overcome anti-nutrients Is simply to apply heat Because that will destroy a lot of them So soy, spinach A lot of the dark greens have what are called oxalates and those block iron absorption and steaming will take care of that cooking in some way applying heat will take care it'll it'll kill the oxalates and then then you can actually absorb iron but if you don't if you eat it raw you're you're like losing iron every time you eat that stuff
1: okay so raw spinach is no good but if i wilt my spinach
0: you could eat a little bit like i mean i eat a raw salad now and then that has you know like raw spinach but don't eat it on a regular basis and you really don't want to juice that stuff you're just going to eat way more than you would ever as a juice. I mean, you can just drink it, and you would never eat that much raw on your own. But the moment you take all the fiber out and you're just glugging it down, you can eat this vast quantity of it, and it's it's just not a good idea. You really will end up with deficiencies long-term if you do it. So wow. steamed steamed kale, eat a little if you want. You know, steamed, you know, like a, I ate sog paneer yesterday at a restaurant. Like, it's you know, it's really yummy when it's cooked, but really you want to be careful with the amount of, the, the raw vegetables you're eating it's just it's just not we're not intended for it. We're not rabbits, we're not cows, we're not horses. we we just can't handle it.
1: okay, so you're saying like the raw veganism is probably the most damaging kind because I've heard you know from from raw vegans especially that their their bones basically are being demineralized because because they can't get the calcium that they need
0: they can't and that's one reason is eating all these raw vegetables if there's way too many anti-nutrients like the oxalates that are just going to grab onto the minerals and just suck them right out of your body another problem is our bodies are designed um, we we don't actually we can't absorb minerals in the digestive tract if we don't have enough fat as we're eating it and so when you eat these low-fat diets you know every time you eat a meal and there's not enough fat in it even if you're eating all the minerals in the world you, you physically can't absorb them without enough fat, and especially animal fat. So this is another reason that these raw vegans just aren't ever going to get enough minerals. Like, it just, it's even if they were taking all kinds of supplements and, you know, trying their best, they're just, they're not there. Um, and then the third problem is the food that they're eating just doesn't have enough minerals in it. I mean, there's just, there's no way that, you know, a carrot or a piece of broccoli is going to have the same level of minerals that a chunk of steak has. Or even something better, like bone broth. You know, like humans have figured out how to get the nutrition out of bones. And we've been doing this for millennia. And, you know, the best way, honestly, is to boil the bones for two or three days and make really good broth. And this around the world, people know how to make broth. And that's why um, it's a really, really great, you know, sort of traditional food way that we've lost sight of in the United States. But bone broth is, you know, universally considered like the most healing food you can eat sort of across cultures and it's true it's because mostly because of the mineral load and then also because of the kinds of amino acids that are then released um that you know will soothe the digestive tract as it goes down so uh, you know on on both levels if you if you need to get healthy really quickly the best thing is bone broth and i would highly recommend it to anyone who's pregnant as well to build a super healthy baby um bone broth is you know you could do you could there's nothing better you could eat when you're pregnant than bone broth
1: wow this is fascinating um Okay, so I wanted to talk to you really quickly about, I've seen a little bit of food ink, probably like half of it. What What about the objection that you hear from, from vegetarians a lot that, that meat is basically a carcinogen? So, yeah, maybe plants have some anti-nutrients and you have to overcome that in certain ways, but, well, meat is even worse for you. What, what do you say about that?
0: Um, I think it's really silly. I mean, we've been eating meat for two and a half million years. Our genus Homo <laughs> has been doing this. It's what made us human beings. It's the reason we have giant brains. Um, there's this really interesting thing that happens archaeologically where, you know, our, our progenitors sort of, the, you know, that final step to becoming human is that our brains grow at this incredible rate. And it's just this really beautiful cycle where we start to make good tools, right? And what this means is, is we can hunt really big animals. So this goes on for a while where our brains get bigger, our tools get better, our hunting gets better, and then our nutrition gets better again. And really, within within a really short period of time, um, you know, on, a, on an archaeological level, um, the human brain just sort of explodes in size. And it's all because we are able to eat incredibly dense food which is to say animal fat, animal protein. And there's some thought that what really spurred human brain development was that we could get into the brain case of other animals. Because it's true, even really large predators can't get through the skull of you know, other creatures. It's too thick. But with our tools, we could. So we essentially start eating brains, which, yeah, is it's like 80% fat. So it's just a little fat orgy. And it's probably true. I mean, it seems pretty clear in the archaeological record. We were doing that. And all of a sudden, the human brain just explodes in size, and our digestive tract shrinks. So it's a trade-off. And they call this the expensive tissue hypothesis. But the trade-off is, you know, we don't have to have a digestive tract that's the size of, say, an orangutan. If you just picture in your mind an orangutan, there's a big barrel chest, right? Like the body is a great big barrel. Mm-hmm. And that's because they have a much bigger digestive tract. It's gigantic compared to ours. But their brains are much smaller. So that's what we traded. Um, We'll take a really small digestive tract, which means we need really high density food to get through, really, you know, get everything out of it really fast. Um, But, you know, the trade off is we get this really big brain. Because your brain uses, you know, moment to moment, 25% of your, your energy at any given second. That's how much it's using. What yeah it's very expensive tissue to have but look what it gave us it gave us the capacity to make these incredible tools um and we could hunt huge animals that we'd never been able to take down before um so that's what we did you know as humans um and that was the trade off so i mean even still the oldest wooden tools ever found are these javelins that were used to hunt essentially mammoths so you know just absolutely gigantic furry elephants um, and they find the tools next to the bones. And it, so it's quite clear what we were doing, right? And then the bones have human cut marks on them, and they were clearly cooked over fires and all this. So there's no question, like, what we were doing with these javelins. But what's so... This is in southern Germany. These are the... I, can't, I think they're made from yew wood, maybe. I can't quite remember. But these javelins are so amazing that when they compare them to what we have now, so to what athletes in the Olympics are using when they do the javelins, those throws, Right. So these are, you know, made by the best engineers in the world using computer-generated, you know, plans, models, whatever. These javelins basically match exactly. The best that we can make now is not really any different than what we were making 500,000 years ago. So we already had it figured out, like how to make a spear, you know, with a tip that's going to go really hard, really fast, and in this case to take down animals for food. Um, and so that was the trade-off. So for, to come back and say, oh, well, this is going to give us cancer seems insane to me. This is what the, the human template, this is, you know, what evolution designed us for, was to eat giant animals, you know, on the the, the savannas of Africa. You know, there's those huge migrations of, you know, wildebeest and elephants and, you know, the, the gazelle, like all those animals. This is, you know, absolutely what's found in the first human You know, middens, the little garbage piles that we left behind. And you can also just look at the cave paintings, like the first art that we ever made. What did we draw? What were we painting? And it's giant animals. It's those mammals that essentially gave us life that were feeding us. Yeah, bison. Reverential, and they're beautiful. And they're, I mean, just the cave paintings are so amazing. And I mean, this may be apocryphal. We don't really know. But Pablo Picasso apparently went to Lascaux when it was still open to the public. And when he emerged from the cave, what supposedly what he said was, "We have invented nothing," meaning like the whole sweep of of Western art was like, "No, they were doing this 20,000 years ago. Like they already knew how to make art, and it's all animals. There's no plants in cave art. You'd see no plants. Like nobody's feeling this reverence for, you know, whatever tofu. I mean, it's like it's not there. It's not to say that people didn't." You know, enjoy the, the loveliness of the world that they were living in, but, and I'm sure they did, but the things that we were like really grateful for. I and mean, there's two things are on those cave walls one is giant animals, and the other is giant females. So it's literally life. Like here we are being born, and here we are eating. And it's that, you know, part of being part of that cycle. So,
1: so humans used their giant brains to make spears and not the world's best hoe. Seems pretty compelling to me.
0: Those don't come along till much later, in 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 you know in the human in the archaeological record. And when they do come along, no one's making reverential art, like you say. That's that's just not happening. I'm not saying people didn't eat some of those things. Um, I'm sure that they did, but I mean the other point to note is that uh, they do find what are like, fossilized human waste products. Um, so it's you know like fossilized human excrement, um, and when they do the analysis of what's what were people eating this is so interesting we can actually look under a microscope and see what 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 are these cells and um, it's all animal products like they have found ones there's not a single plant cell in the human waste It's they were just eating meat and really high fat meat and it's quite clear what you know what we were designed to do cancer enters the human experience with agriculture um, this is noted in the anthropo- anthropological literature, really up until very recently. You still had people who were very um, remote from sort of modern civilization. Uh, they didn't have access to Western food sources or highly processed food. They were out eating the things they had always eaten, you know, in their wild lands. So whether it's the Inuit up in, you know, way northern Alaska or whether it was you know, people on the African savannah or whether it was, you know, uncontacted tribes in the Pacific, um, you know, over and over, anthropologists would, you know, write up the sort of first encounters in the first year of living with them, and it would be noted over and over, and this has been going on for 100 years, these people have no cancer. There is no cancer. In fact, I think the last article was like in 1952, and it was about the Inuit, and it was, there's literally never been a case of cancer here. I, I'm a doctor. I've been living here 20 years. You do not see cancer amongst these people. And what are they eating? You know, seal blubber and like really fat seabirds um, year round. And there's no cancer. Um, cancer, again, does not really enter the human experience until the advent of agriculture. And then you have what are called the diseases of civilization. And those diseases include cancer, diabetes, um, all of the. Um, autoimmune diseases, or chronic degenerative conditions that you just don't see in hunter-gatherer populations. And we call them the diseases of civilization for that reason. They only exist in agricultural populations. They don't exist amongst people who are eating to the human template, which means a great deal of meat. So they're just lying when they say, oh, or, you know, you're all going to get cancer. I mean, it just, it doesn't stack up.
1: Okay. So I've heard some chatter about this study called the China study and I know that this is like a this is apparently a common objection of vegetarians to say well no actually meat is really bad for you what what exactly is that and why is it important to the conversation
0: so the China study um, this guy T Colin Campbell um, went around and there was a bunch of people were with him, but they tried to collect a lot of information in China about what people were eating and then what diseases they may or may not have. And his goal, he he's, was very ideological from the beginning. His goal was to try to prove that a vegan diet was the best diet. But the problem is that when you go into science trying to prove something, you often will be able to prove it just because that's what you were trying to do. And, in fact, there were people who dropped out of his study pretty early on they were like we're not actually doing study we're just trying to fix one thing and that's not how science is supposed to work so that's problem number. problem number two is that a lot of people have only read the, um, the sort of the popular rendition of it which is much smaller than and doesn't include all the numbers of what they actually found and there's a woman named Denise Minger who was very young when she did this I think she was only 23 she actually bought the entire thing like the really big book that has all the the actual numbers in it, and she redid all of his uh, statistics and found that he wasn't even telling the truth about it, that the things that he found, like that Colin Campbell didn't even find what he said he found, like it's not actually there. So that's another problem with it, that his numbers don't really stack up. Another problem is that when you do these really kind of broad-based population studies, um, you know, it can kind of point you in one direction or another for further research. You can't really draw a conclusion from that you can only draw a further and that's what he did he, he went on to say oh, well this proves that you know if you eat animal products you're going to get cancer and there's there's not really a way you can do that with that with a study that is that broad and where there's not many um, like there are just <laughs> there's just so many different variables that go into something like that That really the only way to do a study that, you know, would be of that, where you could actually draw a conclusion, you'd have to have people living in like a completely controlled environment for 20 or 30 years and make sure that they only ate what you told them, what you gave to eat. Um, And when they do six studies, you know, we'll keep people in that kind of an environment for a month, you know, to do kind of the first round of studies. Um, for that reason, because when you let them out into the world, you have no idea what they're going to do next. Like they could be taking other drugs. They could forget and do something like you don't know what they're doing. And the only way to really know is to control it. And you can't do that with millions of people. Like it's just, there's no way this Mm -hmm. is ever going to be feasible. And so for him to come back and say, well, we, we now have a conclusion about this. It's kind of ridiculous. Like all the different things that go into those people's lives could be causing more cancer or less cancer. Like the amount of sunlight they get. We know that sunlight is a factor. You can get more skin cancer, but you'll get less deep body cancers if you have more sunlight. This is why as you approach the equator, uh, people in northern countries like you know, Sweden or whatever tend to get more cancer. Um, and it's the scary cancers. Uh, skin cancer is actually, for the most part, pretty terrible. But when you don't have enough sunlight, you need the vitamin D. essentially. Um, You know, you're you're more at risk for those kinds of cancers. So for him to to kind of draw these, you know, sort of ABC kind of conclusions, just it's not how science is done. And for people to get caught up in this just really shows how, I don't know, just sort of the lack of basic... We're science illiterate, really, that we don't know that you could do a study like that and then pretend that the conclusion could be drawn. Uh, There's no way that 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 could be... that, that that's really like it's not you can't draw a conclusion like that from the kind of study that he did.
1: Mhm. And it seems even even the journalists aren't aren't necessarily reading the source material. because um, you you know it's not just it's not just when it comes to nutrition that these things happen with with certain studies being being taken out of context or or having conclusions that aren't necessarily supported by the data. I mean you you probably remember what happened with the um The doctor who who basically did the fraudulent study about autism and vaccines Um, and that's still a widely widely circulated talking point even though it's been debunked so
0: struck off the medical register and had to leave the country uh people still think that there's something to that and it just it is very frustrating but um yeah but the person if you really want to know more about the china study uh the person to really look at her name is denise minger she has a blog, and there are these epic posts that she did maybe four or five years ago where she really just took the China study apart piece by piece, and it was fascinating just reading, you know, kind of the research that she she spent months on this just on her own time. Um, and she did a beautiful job. so and then there's you can see where he's responding to her, too. So there was a lot of back and forth between them. Um, so it it's definitely one, especially if you're interested in these sort of social phenomena, like, well, how did this book get popular anyway? And then, well, now, here's a response. And then what happens? And it, the whole thing was like sort of a giant soap opera writ large. But um, yeah, it's really sad that anybody would use the China study to direct their own health because there's really nothing in there that could give you much beyond oh, let's make another thesis and try to prove something. It, like it, it, it doesn't actually do any of that. So.
1: Okay. So I want to circle back really quick to something you said was very appealing to you when you first became a vegan, which is the ethical concerns um, regarding factory farming and you know industrial farming and things like that. So what is your perspective? How do animals fit into this and in, what? What are the problems with with this mass agriculture as we see it today?
0: So, let's see, I'm going to start kind of way back. So, we, you know, as a culture, we don't really understand what agriculture is, and I certainly didn't. It took me a long time to kind of <laughs> nail this down. Like, so, what are we actually doing out there to the world? Um, so, this has been going on for, you know, seven or 8,000 years, and... You literally take a piece of land and then you you clear every living thing off it. So ultimately down to the bacteria. And then you plant it to human use. So all the plants, all the animals, all the microscopic life, you know, bit by bit, you remove it all. Now you've got this empty land and then you plant one thing on it. So corn or wheat or soy, whatever it is. And then year by year, you keep doing that. So whatever life within the soil is going to degrade. You know, as every year goes by, there's going to be less soil. The soil is literally just going to turn to dust with time. And all of the bacteria that sort of does the the basic work of life um, is being eradicated bit by bit. And what you end up with is the dust bowl, or what you end up with is, you know, I think we can all kind of picture what Iraq or Iran look like. Well, I mean, those areas were once forested so thickly that sunlight never touched the ground. Um and it's just been turned into a desert. And that is the end point of agriculture. The dust storms in China now are so bad that the dust like makes it across the Pacific Ocean in giant clouds and can create asthma in children in Denver, Colorado. So it moves across the ocean, hits the Rockies, comes down, and then they have bad days there for literally for life, for breathing. And, you know, children are getting asthma from it. And this is the end point of agriculture. Okay, this is what it means. Um, And that's kind of a a sort of stunning realization to come to. And as a culture, we don't seem willing to make it, even though, I mean, as far back as the ancient Greeks, people were writing about it, you know, that all the topsoil is lost from the mountains, and it has destroyed every river, and there are no trees left, and we are killing everything, and this is bad, but nobody knows what to do. So, I mean, it's been in the written record for quite a long time, Egypt, same thing, they're quite clear that they're destroying their land and it's being you know it's getting more salinated as time goes by and the plants are all dying and what are we going to eat oh goodness this is terrible so you know all of this i didn't know any of this when i became a vegan you know it seems somehow just peaceful to eat corn rather than a steak Mm -hmm. um, because somehow there's no death on your plate but Honestly, what we killed is the whole world. I mean, we were out of topsoil by the year 1950. We had basically skinned the planet alive. And what we've been eating since then is fossil fuel. So, um, you know, scientists have figured out how to take oil and gas and turn it into usable nitrogen for plants. And that's called the Green Revolution. But what it meant was, um, you know, every civilization that's ever existed has collapsed. There have been 32 of them, and every last one of them ends Um because they blow through their topsoil and everything, that's it. That's the end of it. So we would have reached that point in about 1950, um, but we didn't because we figured out this other thing. So that's what we've been living on ever since. And again, these are sort of scary concepts to engage with, but we're not going to get through it without acknowledging the kind of the situation that we're in. So that's where we are, and that's what agriculture is. Um, so we're gonna. I'm going to take... We're going to go two ways here. There's, we're going to take one acre of land, and we're going to think about what we could do with it. So on the first acre of land, we're going to do what we're doing now. You clear everything off it, you destroy the soil year by year, and you're going to grow corn. So at the end of each season, you know, at the end of the summer, you've got one acre of corn. And with that corn, you can do one of two things. You could just feed it directly to people, which is what the vegetarians say we should do. Or you can take that corn and ship it to essentially a city. Of cows living on cement floors inside a steel barn and feed it to the cows. And these cows will be very sick because that's not their native diet. Corn is way too acid for their stomachs. It's just going to kill them slowly. So you'll do this for a month or two until they get really fat because that's what happens to cows on corn. So they get really fat really fast, which means they're worth a lot of money. Um, And now you're going to feed that meat to people. So that one acre of corn can feed one cow essentially. That's enough calories for her for like a year so at the end of this whole year you've destroyed the land more you've got less topsoil the water is more damaged you know all the animals plants have nowhere to go um you know and and you've used a lot of fossil fuel and you have this one really sick cow at the end of the year you can feed her to some people but honestly it's not going to be great for them either because the amino acid balance is wrong because she wasn't eating the right food And the fatty acid balance is also all wrong because she wasn't supposed to be eating corn. She should have been eating grass. So you've got basically death and destruction the whole way. And that's what we're doing now. And the only point of diversion with vegetarians is they say, well, that acre of corn should have gone to people, not to the cow. And I say, can we just back this up a little further? Because it's still not a happy ending. We've got this acre of land. Why don't we leave it alone? It is naturally a prairie. That means every square meter... Has 25 different plants, but like that's how much life should be on that acre. It's like this incredible amount of life. And then you've got all the bacteria, all the little microscopic creatures that are really doing the basic work of life. They're breaking down whatever's dead. They're breaking it down, making those nutrients available again to the rest of the community. They're doing things like, um, you know, breaking down rock at the very bottom of the root tips. You know, it, we think of plants as these creatures that bring up minerals from way deep and that's true but they don't do it alone they can't actually eat rock either but who can is bacteria and so the bacteria supplies does that sort of acid work and breaks up the minerals, makes them available to the plants and in exchange they get a little bit of sugar from the plant, so again it's one of those relationships, the minerals come up to the surface of the soil and the whole community of life needs them so that's where we get the minerals, right and um, so the plants do that. Deeply rooted perennial, perennial plants can do that. The deeply rooted perennials also make channels for rain to enter the soil. When you have things like corn and wheat, which are, are annual plants that don't live long, um, their, their roots just aren't that deep. They're, they don't live long enough to make deep roots. So every time it rains, the water mostly just washes off. But when you have an intact perennial landscape like that, it's, all the water can be absorbed immediately. So the water table recharges. And what that means is, as the... As the you know, the temperature dries everything up over the summer. There's plenty of moisture in the soil for everybody to have, and that's how life continues. So the plants can draw it up bit by bit as they need it from way deep below, and they can live through those hot, dry summers that you know, will happen yeah. on a prairie. Um, and then you have the, the ruminants. Then you've got the, you know, the bison, let's say, and the bison herd moves through, and they turn that cellulose into gigantic animal bodies with the help of the bacteria. Um, And the plants need to be eaten. That's the thing about grasses. They're really amazing. Um, Most plants, if you chop off the top of them, it's very damaging to the plant. But with grasses, when you graze them, essentially, when you take them from the top like that, it actually stimulates root growth um, below. And so you can see that they evolved being grazed because they know how to handle it. And it actually, the, the action of the bison actually stimulates the growth of the plants. So they're doing this together. Um, if you have a grassland or a prairie and you don't have ruminants, it will eventually degrade into a desert. Um, mm-hmm. You need somebody to be to be eating the cellulose to do that. So you need the ruminants and the bacteria to break down. Otherwise, this stuff just piles up on the surface of the soil. It doesn't degrade fast enough, and then it just um, you know just blocks out the light. And then also some of the plants will take over. So you'll end up with only one or two plants rather than this huge diversity. And ultimately, there'll be more and more bare space between each plant. Um, The moment that you add ruminants back in, um, the place just comes back to life. So here's our acre, right? The first one was just death and destruction all down the route. The second acre, we left it alone. We just let it be the prairie that it wants to be. We have the same number of cows can live on it. On that one acre of corn, you can have one cow. On the one acre of grassland in most climates, you can have one cow-calf pair. So there she is, the same cow on that acre. Only this acre is filled with life. You've got a recharging water table. You've got nearby rivers and streams that are in really good shape because no soil's washing off. You've got all these other animals that can live there. You've got the, you know, the ground-dwelling birds. You've got insects. You've got probably some amphibians even, certainly reptiles. Um, and so everybody's there. Everybody has a home. They're all playing their part to keep that community whole and resilient. And then at the end of the year, you have this cow, and the humans can eat the cow. And the cow... It makes a, a really, really good meal for the humans. The amino acid ratio is correct. The fatty acid ratio is correct because she was eating the food she was supposed to eat. And that's our role. We're apex predators, and our job is, you know, to make sure that the cow and the bison and whoever don't overshoot the carrying capacity of the land. That's what wolves do. That's what humans do. That's what bears do. And that's our role. We have a role to play, too. And at the end of the day, Everybody dies. There's no question. This is just life. But the soil eats us all, and all of us get get regenerated back into the land. So, you know, this idea that there's a food pyramid or that there's a, you know, like a a hierarchy here, like a chain, it's not true. It really is all just a circle of relationships, and we all play a role. But so that's really the difference. Yeah, and so if we could just let the world repair itself, it would be fine. Like there were 60 million bison here 150 years ago. We have traded them in for 40 million really sick cows because those 60 million bison did an incredible job keeping the prairie whole, right? So, I mean, we even have less food than we would have had, and it's just a misery from beginning to end. Like, nobody's mm-hmm. happy in this situation. All those other animals have nowhere to go. They've all been pushed to extinction. Um, and and for what? Like, it doesn't even make any sense at the end of the day. Like, what are we doing? But that those are the two different visions. And, and I get that the vegetarians are upset about how animals are treated in factory farms. And I, I completely agree, it's wrong, you know, to, to take sentient beings and put them in really just dreadful situations. I mean, there's there's not really any reason for it. So we can have plenty of food if we just let the world be the world and be who we are. It's not, I mean, just, it's our nature as well, you know, to participate. We We don't have to dominate everything to have a good life.
1: Right. Yeah, this is so interesting and I have so many more questions. But I am going to ask just one more question and that is what is the most persuasive argument that you would give to a vegan or a vegetarian sitting across from you right now who maybe hasn't been off animal products for very long and maybe they're feeling pretty good cuz they're probably not eating a lot of junk food, they're not eating a lot of processed sugar and they're like, "No, this seems right to me." What what would you say to that person? Or, or I guess, what would you say to yourself when you were 16, knowing what you know now?
0: So if, if this person hasn't been doing it long enough that they're feeling the ill effects, there may not be a way through. I mean, I'll just say that flat out. Like you, when you embrace this, you go full on, right? And until your body starts hurting, you're not particularly willing to question it. So if it was somebody who was having health problems, that's often the only way in. But, given that our scenario here is that, you know she's only been doing it for six months and she's still not feeling it, okay, fine. I think that really the best way through is, is is people in this in this culture, we are so removed from the nature of nature. We don't know what we're doing when we say that you know we think that the eating a vegan diet is peaceful and it's sustainable and it's nonviolent and it's not hurting animals. It's like every single one of those things is completely wrong. So I would try to walk her through, well, where do you think your food comes from? And why do you think there's no dead animals in it? Because step by step, you're not just killing one animal. You're killing an entire biotic community. Like you're killing the entire Great Plains. There should be so many plants and animals. There should be those 60 million bison there, and they're gone. All it is is corn and wheat and soy. Like that, we didn't have a right to do that. You know it's dead like the mississippi river is just it's over it's nothing but a series of channels the colorado river doesn't reach the ocean anymore it hasn't for 20 years like, that should be so dense with life and you read the descriptions of what those places were like 100 years ago and you just can't even imagine how many living creatures there were and it's all gone it's all been turned into a monocrop for humans and mm-hmm. anybody who cares about animals like you can't take away 98 percent of the habitat of animals and say that that is somehow good for animals it's like they need to understand what agriculture is it's biotic cleansing like we've all heard of um you know like sort of genocidal you know like ethnic cleansing and it's horrible right well this is even bigger because it's every last living thing is cleared off that land and i don't expect people to particularly care about bacteria most people don't you can't see them you know they don't have faces but we do care about things like birds right and And reptiles and, you know, megafauna. I mean, who couldn't look at, like, the glory of a bison and not feel it? Like, they're amazing creatures. And somehow vegetarians think that they're not hurting those creatures. And the problem is so much bigger than just what's dead on your plate. Because it's not about what's dead on your plate. It's about what died to get that food on your plate. And if you're eating agricultural foods, I mean, honestly, the answer is everything. Everything died. We're killing the planet by doing this. It was a terrible mistake to take this up. So that's what I would say. I would try to get through, like, the amount of death that's involved and and that there's, not, there's no way to be a human and not have death be in your life. And honestly, this was one of the things that helped me the most. And I know this sounds, like, so corny and so cliche, but I had a Native American friend and what she said to me was, you need to learn from my grandmothers. And what they told me was, for something to live, something else has to die. And that's what I was taught when I was a small child. And you weren't taught that. You need to hear it. Your life is only possible because other things die. And so every day you have to be grateful for that. But there's not a way out. There's no way out. Things are going to die to support you. We can't photosynthesize. You know, we're not plants. We have to get our energy from other living beings. And every last one of them is a sacrifice to us. So all we can do is be grateful. And that to me was like, I mean, it was just such, indeed, it was something I should have known when I was four and I didn't, you know, I don't live in that world. And it... It really, it suits me greatly to hear her say that, like, because I could see the truth of it. Like, at that point, I'd already been a gardener. I'd already had chickens. Like, I'd seen enough death and I could see she was right. And
1: yeah, it's simple. It's simple, but it's so profound.
0: It is. And also the grateful part, like, there's no way out of this, but you, you can find so much beauty in it as long as you do it well and you do it gratefully. And that's really the only attitude that we have, you know, available to us because, once you take birth once you're in a body it needs to be sustained and there's going to be death involved yeah like it's true so we take the good with the bad there's that bittersweet moment but it's still like it's such an amazing thing i mean i'm looking out the window right now and all like i live in the redwood forest and there's just i see the trees and then there's the deciduous trees that are just coming back now because it's spring and there's you know the green buds are coming out and there's some flowers and there's I see a little robin eating something and there's another bird over there. And like, how can you not just be so grateful for this planet and for this, this, just the capacity we have to see this beauty and feel it. So we have to be grateful, but that means we have to do it well. So we have to respect all the lives that are taken so that we can live. Like it's really our only option.
1: Lear, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been such an interesting conversation. I hope to talk to you again in the future. Um, Your book is The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, Lier, is there a place online that people can catch up with you and what you're working on and interviews you do and things like that?
0: Yes, I have a website. which is easy. It's lierekeith.com and that's a joke because I have a really strange name and it's hard to spell. Actually, the easiest way to find me is just type into Google vegetarian myth. There is only one book called that, and it's mine. So from there, you can definitely find my website because I don't expect anyone to be able to spell my name the first time out.
1: Okay, excellent. All right. You can follow the podcast on social media at 180cast. Give us a review on iTunes if you liked it. Also, you can send me your feedback, good or bad, just as long as you're nice about it. Because I'm much more likely to listen to somebody who is nice. So, also, if you have a 180 story to share, you can DM me on Twitter, again, at 180cast. Or you can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless.